0: Amen. Well, I'm so excited to be here with you guys this morning. My name is uh, John Schaefer. Uh, I am obviously not Pastor Keith. You're like, man, Pastor Keith got ugly. But um, no, but I am I am here at the request of Pastor Keith and Julie, and I'm just so thankful for them um, not only offering us the opportunity to come and be with you guys, who are like family to us, we love you so much, but um, just the opportunity to, to to stand in his pulpit and of course i 'm I'm, I'm graced by the presence of my smoking hot wife, Christine, over here <laughs> two words fire bay that 's my fire bay over there she 's hot, and i 'm glad that she is here this morning and i 'm also excited this morning because. Uh, The last couple of times that I've had the opportunity to be with you, I have been tasked with the uh, very difficult reality of kicking off another one of these scenes um, in the Saga of Salvation, and I believe for the first time I actually get to close a scene this morning, and so uh, uh, this morning we're going to be wrapping up this current scene in the Saga of Salvation, this year-long journey that you have been going through the Bible, seeing how every jot, every tittle, every word points to the coming and reign and rule and salvation and redemption of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so we're going to be closing out this prophet and king's um, scene this morning with um, a couple of my favorite Bible heroes. And we're going to get to that here in a moment. But before we begin, as I was praying and preparing and talking with Pastor Keith and, uh, you know, praying with him and believing God with him for how this would go. Um, the, the, the Lord dropped a, a word in my spirit that's going to kind of set our trajectory uh, for this morning as we kind of wrap this this thing up. And the word that the Lord gave me is this, transmission. To turn to your neighbor and say, transmission. Transmission. Now for those of you who are car enthusiasts or like me, don't know anything about cars, especially when they break, you know that a transmission is the mechanism or device that, that, that takes the energy uh, produced by the engine and transmits it and pushes it to the wheels so that the vehicle can, can accelerate properly to attain the, the appropriate amount of velocity necessary for forward momentum, right? The transmission is the thing in your car, and if you're like me, and I caught my my youngest son, Josiah, he's five, he'll be six in a month, he was driving our van, now obviously he wasn't driving it, but he was sitting in it, and he was doing what most of us do when we're little kids and we get behind the wheel, for those of you that don't know anything about cars or automotives, the part of your car is the transmission. Are you with me this morning? And see, the transmission is important because in order for the car to continue to move forward and gain speed and accelerate so that you can get where you go, you have to go through stages or, or gears where you, you're in first gear, and then if you're like me, I like to drive a stick, you hit the clutch, or if you're a dangerous fellow, maybe every once in a while, you'll be on the highway and you'll grab it, uh, uh, uh. But see, the transmission is important because it allows you to move through the stages of acceleration so that you can continue to increase velocity so that you can get where you're going. And if you've ever had a car where the transmission broke down, what you'll probably notice is that when you're expecting the uh, 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 That uh, uh part doesn't happen, because the transmission is broke and what ends up happening is you find yourself stuck in a gear and unless you take your foot off the gas to slow down, if you keep pushing the gas, you'll realize that your engine begins to uh, have RPMs, right, uh, revolutions or rotations per minute. Somebody help me out in between services. All I know is that when that other thing that's not the speedometer, the other dial, come on. You can tell I'm not a car guy, right? Some of you are like, this guy's so stupid, you just already tuned out, he doesn't know what he's talking about. How can I believe if he knows the word of God, he doesn't know what an RPM is, right? I know what an RPO is, That's what. I, there you go, run pass option. But if you don't shift Stay with me, people. If you don't shift, if you stay stuck in that gear because the transmission isn't operating as it should, you stay stuck in a gear, and not only are you stuck where you are, now the RPMs in the motor begin to run at a dangerous level. This is where we get the phrase running in the red. And if you're not careful, you can blow your engine up because your engine isn't designed to stay stuck in a gear. It's designed to uh, 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 so that you can keep moving forward faster. Faster and faster in an accelerated rate to get to where you want to go. How many of you know that your life is a car, God is driving it, and he has no intentions to see you stuck in a gear where you're running at the red and find yourself blowing up. And every so often, God has to come and grab a clutch and shift gears. And see, that's where we are at the end of this scene of the prophets and kings. Because as you've been trekking along, you've seen that God has ordained and assigned leadership and direction and guidance for his people, and he has switched motives, it would appear, along the way. Started with the call of Abram, right? Abram, come out, go to the place where I'm going to show you. It's a familial thing, right? God's people is a family. It's a clan. Then it goes Isaac, Jacob, and now it's tribes, After the exodus, they become a nation, and while they're in that nation, because they did not want God as king, they began to live in ways that they shouldn't have lived, and they began to see themselves running in the red of sin and idolatry, and God would have to send judges, he would appoint judges, and he would anoint them with his Holy Spirit, And then as they transitioned out of that period of the judges, because at that point in time, it was supposed to be God's priests, right? The religious leaders were supposed to lead people into a relationship with God and to lead them into the the, the direction that God would have them be in. And the priesthood fails, and we see at the beginning of 1 Samuel that the collapse of the priesthood under Eli, and so God raises up another Samuel. And so Samuel, who is himself a prophet, begins to be the one that God uses to shift the gear, to transition them out of a priestly-led nation and into a nation led by kings. And as we'll see here in a moment, as we look at the two individuals who we'll be just glancing at briefly here this morning, Elijah and Elisha, we will see that the king idea that Israel wanted, God didn't want it, Israel wanted it. The king idea has failed. The kingly line is in shambles. The nation is now split into two nations with ten of the tribes to the north doing their own thing, and then Judah and Benjamin to the south doing their own thing, but doing their very best to stick to the Davidic covenant, waiting for the one that is to come who would sit on the throne of David forever and ever and ever. But nevertheless, both of these nations are now in deep-seated idolatry, and their RPMs are getting to the point where God now graciously is going to come and pop the clutch and grab a gear to transition them out of this season and into the next. And there may be times in your life and it's usually at times where we feel like we've lost power, right? Because that's one of the funny things. If you've ever driven a manual transmission, right, with the clutch There is a slight and momentary loss of power as you move from one gear to the next higher gear. And there are times in our life where God is shifting gears in our lives and we feel like we're losing power. But I want to give you guys hope this morning. God's just taking you to the next gear. Because there's another gear after that and there's another gear after that. And here's the kicker. It's not about gears. It's about the destination. God has a good and great and wonderful destination. And even though Israel is rejecting him and rebelling and doing all of these other things, God is getting ready to shift them into a new season. Because now he's not going to lead through kings anymore because even the kings have rejected God. But God is preparing Israel for a time when they will be in exile. I like to call it the 70-year spanking. Right? Israel didn't listen for centuries, and God kept sending them prophets like, yo, you better turn and listen. Yo, you better turn and listen. They didn't turn and listen. Then he sends other prophets. Oh, too late to turn. You're going into captivity for 70 years. But those prophets also had grace and hope behind it and said, don't worry. I'm going to just put you on a 70-year timeout, and then I'm going to bring you back to this place. But because the kingly line is going to be no more, there won't be kings in Babylon, that, at least godly kings that they're going to listen to. God is beginning to, through Elijah and Elisha, to prepare his people to learn how to hear from him, not as edicts from the king, but as his word through prophets. Because while they're in exile, they'll need Jeremiah. While they're in exile, they'll need Ezekiel. While they're in exile, Daniel the prophet needs the prophetic works of Jeremiah because he is the one that reminds the people of Israel that, look, we're not staying here forever. We're getting ready to shift another gear and go back home. Can somebody say amen? Transmission. But there's another meaning of transmission, right? Because transmission isn't only the device or the, the mechanism that's in your car. Transmission can also mean the action or process of causing something to pass from one place or person to another. Like an infection that is transmitted from one host to another, God has placed his grace and his anointing and his salvation and his word in and on our lives so that we, as we have been called into relationship with him, can go out into a world that does not know him and transmit the glorious infection of the grace of Jesus Christ so that people can see their lives transformed. And one of the amazing things about Elisha and Elijah is that not only is it preparing them for this new season of leadership and operation in their history, but God is also developing and taking to the next level what was always his original plan, the raising up and releasing of sons. See because back in Genesis chapter one verse twenty six and twenty seven it says that God said and let us make man in our image, male and female. He created them, and so he made man in his image and likeness. And then in Genesis 1:28 28, it says, and God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over it. Why? Because God is the reigning ruler and king, has been, is, and always will be over all of creation. And God created mankind to be little versions of him, sons, if you will, who he would impart things into life, right? God spoke the animals into existence. He got his hands in the dirt and formed Adam and breathed life. And he said, I want you to take this life, this zoe life, the New Testament calls it, and I want you to transmit it to the world. But what happened was Adam fell. He sinned. He fell. And as Romans 5 graciously tells us, he's now transmitting sin, and death comes through sin. But aren't you glad that God wasn't caught unaware? (laughs) aren't you glad this morning that Adam's fall did not cause the father to look over at the son and convene with the Holy Spirit and say, what are we going to do now? No, God was not caught unaware with Adam's fall. He understood and knew Adam's fall. And I will even go as far as to say it was part of God's plan because the Bible tells us that Jesus is the lamb slain for sin from the foundations of the earth. So God already had a plan that when Adam fell, God's like, now I can get them because now instead, of of being automaton robots who have to listen to me they will be people who choose to believe in me and when they believe in my son the son Jesus Christ they will become sons and they will inherit the kingdom that I have for them and see that's one of the things that's happening here in prophets and kings because if you'll remember the priestly line right Aaron was the first high priest. Aaron, the brother of Moses, first high priest. And then it was supposed to pass biologically from Aaron to his son, to his son, to his son, to his son, to his son. Then the priestly line blows up. God raises up a king. And the kingdom, the kingship, the monarchy, if you will, is supposed to be a translation of a biological authority. So David's son and then David's son's son, and so on and so on and so on. But God is preparing his people to enter into what all of us have entered into now. We are not, according to John chapter 1, sons born of the will of man, but we are, by receiving Jesus, sons born of the living God. We have been born again, and the, the, the transition of authority and anointing is no longer an earthly biological one, but a spiritual one, which is always the plan that God have. Are you still with me this morning? This is too much for Sunday morning. Then, then get to a Bible study or something. But, but, but this, is, this is the essence of Christianity. It's not just about your best life now or your best life then. It's about being adopted as sons. Romans 8.15, a verse that I heard taught that changed my life. Romans 8.15 says this. For we are no longer, we no longer have a spirit where we are slave again to fear. But we have been given the spirit, capital S, of sonship, of adoption, by which we cry, Abba, Father. See, the spirit that makes us a slave again to fear is the biological spirit that has transitioned through our DNA from Adam all the way down to us. But the Holy Spirit whom God gives stamps us as sons, as heirs, as appointed and anointed ones to be God's children. And as we're going to see in this scene of salvation that God is not just grabbing gears to shift Israel out of this stage and into the next, but God is beginning to unfold even more. He's peeling back more layers of the onion. I like parfaits. Some of y'all didn't even catch that Shrek reference. Why you got layers like onion? I like parfaits. Everybody like parfaits. See, God is peeling back the layers because this was always his intention, was to have spiritual children, sons and daughters that would take what he has imparted to them and pass it on to the next generation. That's why Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, he says, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, pass it on to faithful others who will in turn pass it on to other people. God is about bloodlines. And as we look at these two amazing uh, heroes of Scripture today, we're going to see how God is transitioning them and us and making us aware that this was always his intended purpose. So if you have your Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the book of First Kings. We're going to do now. Look, I was very impressed. And I said this to your pastor because I watched. I don't get a chance to watch the live streams, but I, I, I watch the, the, the archives, the video recordings. And, and I watched him last week go from the end of 1 Samuel into the halfway of 2 Samuel. I said, bro, that was a feat. I said, you, 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 you mastered it. And so today I'm going to try to walk in those big shoes, and, and we're going to look at some passages from 1 Kings and from 2 Kings. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 19 so that we can look first at our first object, our first subject, I guess I should say, this morning, Elijah. Elijah. Elijah the prophet. Now, Elijah is most well-known probably for his showdown with the prophets of Baal and Asherah on Mount Carmel. How many of you remember that story, right? Israel is in utter idolatry. The king at the time is Ahab, but Ahab is not running things. His wicked wife Jezebel is actually manipulating him and running things through him. Her her behavior is where we get this ideology of the Jezebel spirit, right, who wants full control but none of the responsibility of control, who manipulates, contorts, and makes us walk on eggshells when we're around them. That's a whole other teaching, but that's the dynamic that we're seeing. And Jezebel has allowed the, the, this, this, this I- idolatry and false religion of Baal and Asherah to come in to the nation. And so now we're at a point in time where not only are the people of God Following other things, but those who still have a heart after God and want to see the things of God in their nation, they are now being hidden and, 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 and kept away. Does it sound like a world that we might be living in right now? Right? And so Elijah has enough of it. Matter of fact, one of the really cool things about Elijah's just out of nowhere popping up to the, on the scene in 1 Kings chapter 17 is that it comes right after 1 Kings chapter 16 which closes out with this very weird, just sideways, out of nowhere story about a man who rebuilt Jericho. He rebuilt the foundations, right, where the walls fell down. Well, when Israel took Jericho, Joshua prophesied and said, anyone that ever tries to rebuild this city, they will lose their first son, their oldest son, when they lay the foundation. And when they set up the gates, which would be the final piece of building at least the, 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 the barracks or the armaments of the city, they will lose their son. And there's this guy named Hiel who did just that. He rebuilt Jericho at the cost of his oldest son. He laid the foundations. And at the cost of his youngest son, he set up the gates. And so Elijah actually comes onto the scene at a point in Israel's history where it is clear and obvious that they have no regard for the next generation. They're all about building their own little kingdom. And I'm here to tell you something today, church. This is not a problem that's just out in the world where they're killing babies in the womb or where they're, you know, we're going to live for today and not worry about the finances or the governance of our country anymore. This happens in the church. This happens in the church where if we're not careful, us anointed and appointed Bald heads and gray heads. We just hold on to everything, and we really don't care about investing in the younger generation. And if we care about saying anything to them at all, it's stop running. Don't bring that in the sanctuary. What are you wearing? I can't believe you act like that. I don't never win a kid to Jesus. It's just a little parenthetical insertion there for for those of you that might, you know, have seen this on your rounds. But we see that Elijah is most well known for this showdown because. He gets all these prophets, and I love it because, like, I'm a snarky dude. I'm a sarcastic dude. You know, I'm just funny and all that stuff. So they get all these 450 prophets. Elijah's the only man representing God there, and he says, yo, check it out. Bet. This is how Elijah talks in my world. All right, yo, yo, check it out. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a test to see who is the real God. So I want all of you, 450 of you, all of you, little crazy, wild, crazy people. Here's what I want you to do. You set up an altar. And from the beginning of the day until noon, I want you to call on your God. And then I'll call on my God. And the God who answers with fire is the one true God. And so the prophets of Baal, they set up an altar and they begin to start, to, eh, I don't know, That's just kind of did, like doing, you know what I mean? Some kind of tribal stuff. All kinds of crazy stuff. The Bible says that they're, they're crying out to their false god so hard that they, that they start cutting themselves with stones. Like, ah! And then Elijah, I love this. This is why I love this dude, right? He starts to mock him. He's like, he's like maybe he's sleeping. Cry louder. <laughs> then he says something that is a Hebrew idiom that I just really love. He's like, he's like well, first he says, maybe he's on vacation. Just keep, Just keep crying. Then he says this Hebrew idiom. He says, maybe he's covering his feet. And that idiom, it's a figure of speech for, for, for doing a number two. It's like, maybe he's on the toilet. Maybe he's dropping a deuce. Maybe that's why he is not answering you. The Bible says they wore themselves out. And Elijah says, okay, check it out. Bet, yo, here's what we're going to do. Hootie who. Sets up the altar. Actually says he rebuilds an old altar. <sighs> Slaughters a bull. Anybody that's ever slaughtered a bull by hand knows that that did not just, he didn't like, <laughs> he was not sushi chef. On that. But before he laid the bull on that altar, he said, Go and get me some water. He has 12 jugs of water and he dumps it on the wood. And not only is it fascinating what happens next, but here's the thing: they had been in a drought for three and a half years. Where did he get the water? He says, Dump that water on it. The Bible says that the altar was so saturated they had dug a ditch around it that the ditch even filled up with water. He put the bull on it. And he called on God, whoo, fire, boom, wow. The Bible says that the fire even licked up the water out of the trough. And then Elijah does what I I love the most. He says, All of you who want to follow the real true God, rally to me and kill these jokers. Wakaka. And they just start going to work on these prophets of Baal. Huge victory. But see, one of the amazing things that we often forget is that right on the heels of this huge victory, Elijah supernaturally runs from Carmel, outraces the chariot of Ahab, back to Samaria the capital of Israel at the time and somehow some way he is positioned somewhere in the palace where he overhears the words of Jezebel saying may it be done unto me if by this time tomorrow Elijah is not dead and somehow some way after that amazing demonstration of God's power God's grace and God's with himness Elijah falls into fear and runs away First Kings 18 it says that he ran And he laid under a broom tree, basically a small desert bush. And the Bible says that he laid there and said, called out to God and said, God, I just want to die. Has anybody ever been there? Have you ever just been somewhere in your life where no matter what just happened, how great the success was, you're at a place in your life where you're just like, God, the depression is so real, the pain is so real, the hurt is so real, the exhaustion is so real that you're just like, God, let me die. How many of you know that God is the giver of life? And so God sends an angel to meet Elijah there. And the Bible says that he fed Elijah with four things that are specific. It says that he fed Elijah cakes of bread, baked over hot coals, and gave him water. And one of the things that I love so much about that is that what the angel gave Elijah to eat was Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Jesus said, I am the rock. The Holy Spirit is the fire from heaven that heats the rock, and the Holy Spirit is the living water. But see, Elijah got a second dose because he fell back asleep. He said, here you go. And then it says something significant. In the strength of that food, in the strength Of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, he journeys 40 days to Horeb where he goes into a cave and he meets with God. But he doesn't go into a cave like many of us would, victoriously, full of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, full of I just killed the prophets of Baal. He goes into the cave like many of us, if we're really honest with ourselves, go into the caves of our lives. I want to hide. I want to die. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm tired of this. He actually begins to complain to God when God shows up to meet with him, and he says, God, I'm the only person that still follows you, boo-hoo, God tells him to come out to the mouth of the cave and he, he, the Bible says that, and a great wind came and shook the mountain, but God was not in the wind. Then it says a great earthquake came and rattled the very walls of the cave, but God was not in the earthquake. Then it says fire fell and came, but God was not in the fire. Sounds like me after I eat Indian food. But then something amazing happens. God who does not show up in the wind, who does not show up in the fire, who does not show up in the shaking of the very foundations of the earth. He shows up in a still small voice and he gives Elijah the marching orders for the next season of our lives. You see, because even when you're as faithful of a servant as Elijah, God has to come and shift some gears. And he says to Elijah, in 1 Kings 19, verse 13, it says, And when Elijah heard it, the still small voice, he wrapped his face in his cloak, and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? See, even when we try to run from God, God is gracious enough to show up and say, What are you doing here? I wanted you over there, but what are you doing here? And he's not saying it in a way that is condemnatory because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's not saying it in a snarky way or a mean way. He's saying, Elijah, I have called you to so much more than hiding in a cave. What are you doing in this place? Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah repeats to him his complaint from earlier in the night. He says, I, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts for the people of Israel, have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. It's funny how God will, who normally says, don't go back the way you came. But when you get off track and go away, you shouldn't go. God will say, go back the way you came because I have a better path for you where you deviated from. And he said, when you arrive in Damascus, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. So God is transitioning leadership in the two kingdoms. And then he says this, and you shall anoint Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel, Meholah, and you shall anoint him to be prophet in your place. So God's not just saying raise up successors for the king, but he's saying raise up a spiritual son who will fill your shoes when your time on earth is done. And that leads to my first point today. Spiritual sons like Elijah become spiritual fathers when we learn to persevere. Spiritual sons, how many of you feel like you're a son, a child of God here today? That's awesome. How many of you know that God has a calling on your life to be a spiritual father or a spiritual mother to somebody younger or under you in the Lord? But the only way that you can get to that place of being a spiritual father, a spiritual mother, a spiritual mentor is you have to go through some things and learn to persevere. Because Elijah was at the end of his rope, and he wanted to die, but God brought him to that point for this exact same thing. How many of you know that that broom tree you're laying under is not a deviation from the call of God on your life? God knew you'd be there long before you were ever born, and God allowed it to happen so that he could bring you to a place, so that he could build you up in the faith, so that you could come out of that situation bigger, faster, better, stronger than you were before, because your job... Isn't over, you have another generation to raise up, but you got to go through some things to get there. Paul says it like this in 2nd Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, one of my life verses. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that. We despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. See, Paul is writing that to his spiritual children in Corinth. He says, I know you're going through it. And I know you're worried about what we're going through, but God has a bigger plan. Sometimes God has to put a few more plates on the bar so you can get your strength up. And God does that through trials and through persecution. So Elijah Elijah goes, he finds Elisha plowing the fields, he anoints him, he raises him up. And Elisha really, when we look at Elisha, we see that he is a fantastic case study of the results of healthy spiritual fatherhood. I want you to think about this for a minute. Maybe some of you knew this, maybe some of you didn't. Elisha did exactly twice as many miracles as Elijah did. But he also did miracles that were similar to almost to the T that Elijah did. So not only did he act like his spiritual father, but he was two times better than his spiritual father. While Elijah dealt with attacks from within the nation, from Ahab and Jezebel and idolatry, Elisha had done such a good job of bringing the people back at least closer to God that now he's working on enemies outside of the nation. And that's the famous moment in 2 Kings chapter 6 where Elisha wakes up in the morning, right? He's surrounded by the armies of his enemy and he's drinking his Starbucks or if you're really uh, unsaved, Dunkin' Donuts and he's drinking it and he's chill and his servant comes to him like a lot of us do so, oh my gosh, we're gonna die! Let's what's going on he says, yo, check it out, bro he says, look, those who are for us are more than those who are against us and he says God opened his joker's eyes and he sees the chariots of fire see, Elisha unlike his predecessor Elijah, had come to a place in his life where the things that used to upset his spiritual dad now no longer rattle his cage. See, that's a that's a great sign of healthy spiritual parenting. One of my favorite things that he does is that he calls forth bears, she-bears, to attack children who are mocking him. I love that. Have you ever read that and you're like, wow, this really... A, does, does not seem like God, and B, God, can I have this anointing with some of these neighbor kids on my street? Like it's in the Bible. Can I sick she bears on these ratchety trifling kids down the street at 2 in the morning making all this noise? Can I just call them for God, please, can I have that anointing? Right? But I love that because they mock him by saying, go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And even here, it's a subtle indication of the lack of spiritual parenting in Israel. Right? Because first and foremost, this happens right after what we're going to read here in a moment. Elijah got taken up to heaven. So these kids are first and foremost saying to the new spiritual head of Israel, why don't you go away too? Right? Right? How many people in our nation today are saying, why don't you Christians just go disappear? Why don't you just go away too? But the other reason when they call him bald head, whether or not Elisha was actually bald, we don't know. But what we do know based upon 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is that baldness and hair has to do with spiritual covering in our lives. And by calling him a baldhead, they're first and foremost recognizing that there is no one anymore that is covering him because Elijah is gone. But that's because now God is his direct covering. But it also shows their disrespect and irreverence towards spiritual covering in their lives. And so Elisha says, who hoo, who she bears get him? I don't know if he said it like that. I don't know if he prayed in tongues or whatever. But we see that Elisha is still trying to correct diversions from spiritual authority in people's lives. But the most powerful thing that I think we can see from Elisha and see as it, as it regards to transmission of anointing and spiritual parenting is this, is that spiritual fathers release and spiritual sons pursue. Second Kings chapter 2, verse 1, now, When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal, and Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as you live, I will not leave you. And what we see here is this deep seated and deep rooted desire. For people who are spiritual sons to pursue those who are spiritual fathers. Matter of fact, they go through two more stages of Elijah saying, you stay here, I'm going over there. But Elisha is saying, as you live, I will not lead you. That's because people who are spiritual sons have to pursue the spiritual father. So they keep going, they keep going, and eventually they cross the Jordan. I'll just paraphrase it for sake of time. Elijah takes off his cloak. He strikes the Jordan. They go across on dry land. And then then Elijah says to Elisha, hey, the Lord's about to take me to heaven. And Elisha says, "I, I want a double portion of the anointing that's on your life. And Elijah says, okay, here's the thing. If you can keep your eyes on me until I am taken away, you will receive what you asked for. And Elisha does just that. He keeps his eyes on his spiritual father, and as his spiritual father is being taken up, he releases his mantle, the symbol of his authority, to Elisha, and Elisha now receives a double portion of Elijah's anointing. What are the points? There's two in there. First and foremost, spiritual fathers. Stop holding on to what you think is yours because you can't take it to heaven with you. Release the anointing that is on your life to a spiritual son or daughter. Spiritual sons and daughters. Stop waiting for someone to come and mentor you and find someone who has an anointing on their life that you see and crave and desire to have in your life and pursue them and keep your eyes on them until God takes them away. But don't crave their anointing, crave them. Because spiritual fathers release, spiritual sons pursue last and we'll have the worship team come up and get ready as we close this out the last point the last thing that i want us to get is we're talking about the transmission of spiritual authority from one generation to the next how many of you know that it has nothing to do with you it has nothing to do with you it has everything to do with him and his kingdom Stop hoarding the manna and wondering why your life stinks and is full of the offspring of Satan. I'll see you didn't think about that, did you? The manna from heaven back in the Old Testament, God said only take enough for today because if you take too much, if you leave it overnight, it's going to stink and it will be filled with maggots. Maggots are the offspring of flies. Satan is the Lord of the flies and you wonder why your life stinks and you have demonic offspring running wild in your life, it's because you're not releasing the manna that God has put into your life into the next generation because you think it's about you and not about them. Or you want them to become so like you that you can't become a cheerleader for them because you're afraid if they're not little you's, that when you're gone, you won't have a representation here. I want my earthly children, as well as my spiritual children, to be like Elisha, better and more stable than I ever was. But they don't have to look like me. Because you know what? I'm weaker and unstable. The last point is this. Sons replicate and do it better. leave a legacy that brings life i don't have time to read it but in second kings chapter 13 verses 14 through 21 i actually read it here one of the last times that i was preaching here but we see elisha at the end of his life and now elisha has done so much with what god has given him through his spiritual father elijah no longer are the kings running away from him like they ran away from Elijah, and no longer is he running away from the kings of Israel like Elijah ran away from the kings. Now there's been such a measure of reform just from one generation to the next. The halls of government, the leadership of the nation isn't running from him and pronouncing death on him, but seeking him, wanting something from him. How many of you know that if you make Jesus look good, you don't have to chase them, they'll chase you? because the Bible says that surely goodness and mercy will follow me. These signs shall follow those who believe. And Elisha, he's on his deathbed. The king comes in, and he says, My father, my father, the chariots of the Lord and of Israel, the same thing that Elisha said when he saw Elijah go away. See, he was so transformative in the nation that now the king of Israel is thinking he can say a magical formula to get the anointing that passed from Elijah to him to pass from Elisha to the king. And Elijah does the whole arrow thing and all of that stuff. And then the Bible says that Elijah, Elisha dies and they bury him. Then this very weird next part of the story comes. That there was a man who was killed by Midianite raiders and He was killed, and so they just chucked his body into the tomb of Elisha. And when his dead body hit the bones of Elisha, he came back to life. So my question for you is this. What kind of spiritual impact do you intend to leave on the earth that brings life after you're gone? Will the remnants of your life on earth be charged enough with the anointing of God to still bring life to those who encounter it even though they're dead. Because God is looking for sons. God is looking for generations. You know that the book of Genesis is not called the book of Genesis because Genesis means the beginning, but because Genesis, the natural uh, divisions in the outline of Genesis are, are divided by, and these are the generations of Adam, Noah, Abram, Isaac, Jacob, Joshua, Judah, Esau. God is a God of generations. And maybe you're here today. And you say, I want to be a son. I want to be a son of God through salvation in Jesus Christ. I want to be a son of this house and of this ministry. That's me. I want to be a son I want the inheritance to flow through me. Well, if that's you, I want you to find a place at this altar. Because the only way to become a son is to acknowledge the Father. And if you're here today and you say, I want to be a son. I want to be a son of God. I want to be a son of this house. I want to be a son of this ministry. I want you to find a place at this altar. But maybe you're here today and you've been a son for a long, long time. And when you first got saved, it used to be like the Sea of Galilee, full of life, fresh water, teeming with fish and villages all around. But now you're two decades in and you're no longer like the Sea of Galilee. You're like the Dead Sea. A sea that is so backed up and clogged that it stinks and nothing can live in it. And it's so rife. with with residue and minerals that you can actually lay on top of it and not sink. See, the difference between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea isn't the water because they're connected by the Jordan River. It's the very same water. The difference between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea in Israel is this. The Sea of Galilee releases what it receives, but the Dead Sea does not. And maybe you're here today and you say, you know what? I want the life to come back. I want the teaming to come back. I want to be a father. I want to, under the leadership of this house, be directed to a place where I can father sons in the Lord. I want to, under the leadership of this house, be directed to a place where I can mother daughters in the Lord. And if that's you, then this altar call is for you as well, but it's not just that. Because maybe you're here today, and you feel like God is downshifting your life. You feel like you're losing power. You feel like you don't got no more traction. Can I tell you? Can I be real? Can I be open with you? Me and my life have been in a year and a half long downshift. We don't know what in the heaven God is doing. But we understand the principle of transmission. And we understand that there was a season that as much as we may miss it, us and me personally, I was running in the red. And I was about to explode. And God said, you'll never get to where I want you to get to running that way. You'll blow up before you get there. So I'm going to shift. Now we're getting our, our groove back. But maybe you're here today and you feel like that's you. God's downshifting me. I want you to find a place at this altar. I want you to find a place where you can find the comfort and feel the presence of God to know that even though you feel like you're downshifting, it's, it's not a transition. It's just some transmission. Because he's taking you faster and further than you ever thought possible. And last but not least, maybe you're here today and you feel like you're running in the red. You're running in the red and you're about to explode. Maybe you're running in the red of sin because you've never given your life to Jesus. Can I encourage you today and tell you that one of the most beautiful demonstrations of God's love, grace, and mercy found in the Bible is depicted in the illustration of a lost son who comes to himself and comes home to his father. And if that's you here today and you say, I'm tired of running in the red, I'm tired of running with the devil, I want to come home to my father's house. If that's you, find a place at this altar because I'm going to pray with you. You say, I want to be a son. I want to be a father. I want to find the comfort of being in a downshift season in my life. I want to be a lost son who comes home. It's that you just come to these altars right now. Don't wait. The worship team's going to play. I'm going to pray, and then we'll go home. Because God is a God of generations. And even though he works in movements, if we're not careful, man takes the movements and turns them into monuments. And we'll keep wanting to come back to these things. But God has a trajectory of forward momentum for you. But it cannot happen until you come and find a place where you can have that moment. Where God transmits what is in him to you and shift the gears of your life to get you further and faster than you ever thought possible. Come now. Find a place and I'll pray.